Scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has loved house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, a quick reminder of where we're at in Mark, Uh, this section between chapter 8, verse 34, and chapter 10, verse 45, around in there, Jesus is driving home what it means to take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. He gave that teaching coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember back in in, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, and then he's calling them now to follow him. Last week, we saw that what it takes to follow the kingdom to follow Jesus and and what's involved with the kingdom is receiving it like a little child we come we saw last week not in strength but in weakness not so self-sufficient but utterly dependent upon Jesus for everything acknowledging our helplessness and trusting ourselves completely to him for his salvation so you remember Last week, Jesus had taken this little child into his arms. He had blessed that child. He had handed the child back to his or her parents. And now the crowd is dispersing, and the disciples are maybe gathering their gear, whatever it was they had with them. But Mark is emphasizing very clearly for us in verse 17 that he was setting out on his journey. In other words, Mark's focus here is that Jesus was bound for Jerusalem. He was on his way to the cross. And then, as we read, a rich young man, and we know he's a rich man from uh, Matthew's Gospel. We know that he's a ruler from Luke's Gospel. And and here we just have that he's a a wealthy man, so rich young ruler. Uh, here, this man comes running up to Jesus and, and falls down in front of him and asks him, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what Jesus says to the man, and then from what the man does when he walks away, we learn how hard it can be to receive the kingdom like a little child. You see, that teaching from last week, and, and literally just moments before what happens you know, in this episode, that teaching from last week can be thought of in a very general way. That's hard. You know, we, we have to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. We have to admit our helplessness. But that, that lands in very concrete and painful areas. And it was landing in a concrete and painful area for this man. He loved his wealth. And the idea of letting go of that wealth in order to come to him as a little child before Jesus, in order to follow him, simply trusting him could not be done. To receive the kingdom like a little child, you have to abandon every effort to earn it. And at one level, this man thought he had earned it. And Jesus is going to expose the fact that you can't earn your salvation. But at a deeper level, what this text is about is not so much what people can and can't do, but what people will and won't let go of. The man couldn't earn his salvation. But the deeper problem for the man is that he wouldn't let go of the thing that he had made his salvation. His wealth. He wouldn't leave the one thing he thought he couldn't live without. He loved his wealth more than he loved Jesus. Now today is Valentine's Day. Today is the day when hopefully you're acknowledging what has been true the 364 days since the last Valentine's Day. And that is that your love has been in the right place. And this man's love was not in the right place. Again, this text isn't ultimately about what we can and can't do. It's about what we will and won't make our highest love. And that's what makes this text especially difficult. I don't know if it's an overstatement to say that this is perhaps the most difficult text, not to understand, but to apply in all of Mark's Gospel. Because Jesus is putting His finger here on the very areas where it can be so hard to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. Where it can be so hard to simply let go of the things that we think we can't live without in order to discover that Jesus truly is enough. This man walked away because he couldn't believe that Jesus could possibly be enough. Jesus stood there with love looking at him. And it wasn't enough. And the challenge that we need to wrestle with this morning is, will Jesus be enough? So three things we're going to see as we look at this passage. First, that no one is good enough. Because at one level, this is about doing versus not being able to do in order to earn our salvation. So, So first, no one is good enough. Second, Jesus has done enough. But then third, His love will be enough. That's where we're headed, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You that You've preserved it for us down to this very day. Lord, we pray that you would challenge our hearts. Lord, would you help us to see the things that we have set our hearts upon or the things that we look to uh, very practically for our sense of well-being and and worth and, and, and salvation at a human level. Lord, would you turn our hearts towards you? Would you grant us that great gift of repentance and faith? Would you enable us to, to walk that path home away from the far country and come back into your loving embrace? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so no one is good enough. Now, let me read back through a few of these verses. Let's just look at 17 uh, through 20. Jesus setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, of course, said, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. And then jump over to verse 20. The man said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, just step back for a second and think about this guy. He's clearly committed to biblical morality. Right? All these things, Jesus, I have done. We're, we're going to see how that wasn't outside the realm of possibility from a superficial, external sense of the law case for him to be able to, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, to do that, to be fastidious about the law. The point of the matter is this was a highly moral individual. He, like Biblical morality mattered to him. He was deeply concerned about his eternal destiny. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't just living for the things of this world. Heaven mattered to him, and he was going to Jesus for the answers. There was some level of, you know, we might say Christ-centeredness about him. He was a good guy, it would seem. Right? High biblical morality. Concerned about his eternal destiny. Some measure of christ centrality he seems like a very good man by any measure it would seem he was good but against the one measure that mattered he fell short you see everything has to be measured against some standard right we're all familiar with what a yardstick is right i did not know this i learned this in a sermon that i was listening to earlier this week the origin of the yard. Anybody know how you know where the first yard came from against every against which every other yardstick throughout history has been measured? King Henry I, 12th century, declared a yard to be the distance from his nose to his outstretched, the thumb on his outstretched hand. That's a yard. I'm just trying to picture why. Like, where did that come from? You know, did, they, did they come to him and say, oh, your majesty, we need another measurement. And King Henry stood before them and went, we shall call it a yard. Right? But, but that's it. At some point, somebody took a string, maybe, and drew it from King Henry's nose to his thumb, cast a die, and henceforth and forevermore, this shall be a yard. Everything has to be measured against some standard. Jesus says, do you want to know what the standard for good is? And he tells us right there in the middle of our text, no one is good but God alone. Why do you call me good? Verse 18, no one is good except God alone. Against what are you measuring your goodness? What's the standard? The worst person you know? Whatever you know, majority rule says is good? Are you measuring your goodness against that? Are you measuring your goodness against whatever in your mind seems like good moral things to do in any given situation? Or are you measuring your goodness against the only true standard of goodness, which is God Himself, the perfect righteousness of God is the standard against which goodness is measured and none of us measures 
up. No one is good. This man was measuring his goodness as well. He was measuring his goodness against his conformity to God's law. Right? From, the, from his youth, so from the time of his bar mitzvah, he said, I have been very committed to keeping the external, external form of the law. Whenever you know, I make every effort to do these things, when I don't do these things, I'm very quick to, you know, to confess it, to repent, and, and look to the sacrifices, and, and all those things. I've kept the external law. Surely I'm good enough. He missed the fact that Jesus had just said, no one is good enough. As Christians, we fall into the same trap. Right? We call it moralism. Externally, I've got my quote-unquote house in order. I look like a very good person. I do a good job of keeping the weeds mowed down. I, I talk about this all the time. You know, when, I, when we think about morality, it's like you know, my yard at home, which I'll see again someday. You know, the grass is green. The weeds are green. And if you keep it mowed low enough, it all looks pretty good from a distance. Right? Don't get too close. Don't see my heart lest you see the weeds down to the very root. Against the one measure that matters, the perfect righteousness of God, no one is good enough. But second, Jesus has done enough. And before we jump into that, we've got to see something about the assumptions that the disciples were making in this uh, central part of the passage. So jump down to verse 23 with me. Let's read 23 through 26. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Now, why were they amazed? They were amazed because in that day and age, it was assumed that if you were wealthy, you were blessed by God. God had shown you favor. Kind of a you know, first century prosperity gospel. You know, the same idea that we would have today. In some circles of of Christendom, that if, you know, if you're wealthy, God's surely blessed you, you're in. And so they were amazed. Jesus goes on and says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a, kingdom, for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Because they're thinking, if a wealthy person isn't in, who could possibly be in? Now again, in, in some circles of uh, Christianity, and I would say outside the bounds of Christianity, there is an idea that you know if you're wealthy, God has blessed you, you're favored by God, and you're in. I do think within the circles of Christianity, we can look not so much to wealth as an indicator, but maybe giftedness, or maybe ministry success, and be wrong. And we saw that tragically played out, uh, came to you know, full revelation this past week with the final report that came out concerning Ravi Zacharias. If you read the Christianity Today article this past week or have seen some of the other things online, you, um, like me, are, are grieved and deeply saddened by the horrible things that this man who I revered whose work so influenced me early as a Christian, and yet now it's come to light just how wicked he was. Just how horribly he abused women. Spiritually, emotionally, probably physically, although all I've read of so far is the emotional and the spiritual abuse in which he said to women, 
if you reveal the secret of the things that I've elicited from you, you will be responsible for millions of souls lost. Up to a month before his death, he was still soliciting inappropriate pictures of young women. Now, at any measure, you would look at this man and, and think, he's so gifted. So many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ through his ministry. If he can't be saved, then who can? And then the veil is pulled back as it has been. And we find it's not about the things that you've done. It's not about the great gifts or the great ministry success or in this context, the great wealth that you've accumulated. It's, it's not about what would seem to be external blessing. It's about the heart. It's not what you can do. It's not what it appears you have done. It's not what you could ever do that will save you. You could never do enough. No one is good enough. No one can do enough. But here's the good news. Jesus has done enough. Jesus has done it all. Take a look at verse 27 with me. Jesus says there, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, please note, after the disciples were saying, how is it that if a rich person can into if a rich person can't get in, who can get in? Jesus doesn't say here, you know, with rich people it's impossible. He says here, with man, meaning everyone, it's impossible. But with God, the salvation, this eternal life, this entrance into the kingdom is possible. Because all things are possible with God. How has God made salvation possible? We're not told in this passage. We get a clue at the end of chapter 10 when Jesus says in verse 45, I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The cross and the resurrection will make plain what Paul says explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 and elsewhere as well. But 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That perfect standard of goodness, the righteousness of God that we cannot achieve, Jesus had it. And He came, He went to the cross, and He died so that the punishment that we deserve for our sin would be upon Him. And the righteousness that was always His and that He merited in our place through His perfect obedience can become ours through faith. In Christ, we are counted good enough. In Christ, we are counted righteous in God's sight. Jesus has done all we need. And this is the major difference between Christianity and every other religion of the world. Every religion is either do or done. Every other religion is do what you must do in order to be right with God or the gods or you know experience karma or whatever. It's all about do. Christianity alone is about done what God did to make a way for us to be right with Him. Jesus, Jesus did more than enough. Jesus paid it all. No one is good enough. Jesus has done enough. But let's come back to this man as we wrap it up. He needed to see what Jesus was ultimately trying to teach him. That his love would be enough. 
Take a look with me at verses 21 and 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't let go of the thing that had a grip on his own heart. Reminds me of the story of a, of a man who had stood up in a church service. It was a time of sharing. And he stood up and he said, you know, I just want to tell you how blessed I am by God. When I graduated from college, I had nothing but student loan debt. And when I finally got a job, I took that first paycheck and I cashed it. And I could have put it in the bank. I could have paid this for that or the other thing. But instead, I put it in the offering plate. The whole thing. And ever since then, I've been exceedingly blessed by God. I've experienced nothing but, but health and, and wealth. I mean, you saw the car I drove up in. You see the clothes that I'm wearing. You know the house that I live in. I have been so blessed because of the wealth that I was willing to give up. And he sat back down, and this older lady behind him leaned forward and whispered in his ear, I dare you to do it again. Right? The man's face was fallen. He reached into his pocket and he started to delete all his hashtag blessed posts from his Twitter feed because he realized he couldn't give it up. His wealth, in fact, had a grip on his heart, and it was the same for this man in this passage here. He couldn't give up his wealth, not because wealth is bad. I mean, the Bible doesn't call us to a life of asceticism, of giving up everything and living a life of poverty. The Bible is very clear that if you are wealthy, you're to be generous with your wealth. You see that in 2 Timothy 6, as Paul is instructing Timothy how to instruct wealthy people within the church there in Ephesus. You see it uh, you know, exemplified in people like Joseph of Arimathea, who was wealthy and out of his wealth was able to purchase a tomb for Jesus' body to be laid in. And so wealth is not bad. It's having your heart set on your wealth that is ultimately what will kill you, what will result in you being cut off from God. For this man, it was his wealth that had become his highest and truest love. What is it for you? It, it may be your wealth, but it may be something else entirely. Right? It, it, it may be that relationship that you've got your heart set on. It may be your career and, and experiencing success in your career, and that's what you've got your heart set on. It may be your intellect, being known as someone who's especially sharp or especially witty. These are the things, you know, that if I have those, I'm good. I mean, what is it for you? Is it, is it your health? Is it your physical appearance? What is it? that you look to and say, as long as I have that, I'm okay. Does that reveal to you, if Jesus begins to put his finger on that area and say, will I be enough if you don't have this? Will I be enough if you don't have that wealth? Will I be enough if you don't have that relationship? Will I be enough when you begin to lose your mind? Will I be enough when your appearance isn't what it used to be? Will I be enough if you never make it up the ladder? and achieve that kind of success. Do you really believe that if you have me, you have everything, even if you have nothing else? 
That's what Jesus is saying to this man. It's what He's saying to us. Now, He's saying it lovingly. I appreciate so much how, again, Peter is you know, dictating to Mark and Mark's writing out how Peter noticed what was happening there. Jesus saw this man. He looked at him and He spoke to him with love. And He said, this one thing you lack you see me before you speaking to you with love, the one thing that you lack is having my love be the true treasure of your heart. And he missed it. He walked away crestfallen. I mean, the language, you know, the disheartened doesn't really capture it. I mean, I, I get the struggle the translators were having because when you look at the word, the closest you can come maybe is deeply crestfallen or something like that. Disheartened. He walked away, sad. He was on the edge of what would bring him true and lasting joy, and he walked away from it into sadness. And maybe you're here this morning having walked out to some degree the depths of sadness, and you're at the edge of joy. Don't walk back into the depths of that sadness. Look instead into the face of Jesus Christ on display for us in the gospel that is proclaimed and experience the joy of His salvation. His love will be enough. Don't walk away sad. Embrace His joy. What will happen when we do? Jesus tells us in verses 28-30. through 30. Let's take a look. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus telling us here? What do we gain if we will, rather than walking from Him, follow Him? Well, we gain hardship. I mean, that's what the message has been all the way up to this point. Jesus has been saying, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That may lead to family excluding you. It may lead to loss of opportunity when it comes to you know, your career. And it may lead to you know, your wealth being taken from you. It will lead to persecution, in other words. It may lead to being disowned by mother and father and relationships being cut off with siblings and children. But follow me, I will be enough. It will also lead to great gain. I think the point of what Jesus is saying when He says that we will receive a hundredfold of uh, mothers and you know, uh, siblings and houses and land is not so much that we're going to get rich and we're going to have lots of people. It just means that we're going to gain a spiritual family. We're going to gain mothers and sisters and brothers and, and spiritual children right here in the context of this church. You're surrounded by them right now. What does it mean that you'll gain houses and lands? Well, you know what? If you don't have your own house to sleep in anymore, there'll be a brother or sister who will take you in. This is the great benefit of a spiritual family now. Some of you are profoundly lonely. Jesus has provided His church to be a family to you. Church, you are surrounded by people who are lonely. 
You are called to be unto them a family. Blessing them even now in some sense with the very blessings with which you have been blessed in Jesus Christ. At one level lost, but ultimately great gain and ultimately eternal life. I was thinking about this passage as I listened to a podcast earlier this week. It was a podcast uh, in which Tim Keller was being interviewed. Now, you all probably are aware of Tim Keller. You know my admiration for Tim Keller. Tim Keller is... um, He's, he said in the pod, pad, podcast, don't say I'm battling cancer. Um, he said, I'm not battling cancer, I'm battling my sin as I go through cancer. Um, but he's six months into chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer. And he gave a very frank interview about um, his, his life and his mortality and his own struggle and wrestle with sin throughout the midst of that. But then he said this, the more we make heaven into the real heaven, the more this world becomes something we are actually enjoying for its own sake. I want to say that this is how the promised blessing that Jesus reveals here in this passage of not only family and, and a place to stay in this time, but also in the age to come, our perspective on the age to come influences the way we think about the good gifts that God gives us now. That's what Keller's saying in this podcast. Let me go on and read it. As a result, speaking of he and his wife Kathy, as a result of them making heaven actually heaven so that they can receive the good things of earth rightly, Keller says this, as a result, we've never been happier. We've never enjoyed our days more. We've never enjoyed hugs more. We've never enjoyed food more. We've never enjoyed walks more. We've never enjoyed the actual things we see, taste, hear, and smell around us more. Why? We got our hearts off those things. So weirdly enough, we enjoy them more. Why did this man walk away sad? He wouldn't enter the kingdom like a little child. He felt like he couldn't let go of his wealth. His wealth had captured his heart. What has captured your heart? What is it that even now you're walking away or have walked away from Jesus in sadness because you couldn't imagine life without it? Now the fact of the matter is we all do that all the time. So lest anyone of us think that we can perfectly do that and inherit the kingdom of God. Let's remember that loving face of Jesus Christ. Let's remember another loving embrace that was offered. A father who, in the parable of the prodigal son, stood on his porch, was watching for his son to come home. And then his son came to his senses. He realized that prodigal lifestyle that he thought he couldn't live without no longer satisfied his heart. And so he left that and returned to a father who was looking to him in love. If where you are in your life right now is in that far country, you walked away sad from Jesus years ago, return even now, or perhaps for the first time, turn and look full in His wonderful face. This man couldn't sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. His hands held tight to the treasure in his heart, 
to the wealth that meant more to him than the love of Christ? What are you willing to let go of in order to follow Jesus? And what will compel you to walk back to him? And the answer is this, by seeing where he was willing to walk for you. Remember, in verse 17, Mark made a point of emphasizing not that the disciples were on their way, but that he was on his way. His way to Jerusalem. His way to the cross. He walked there out of love for you. He gave up everything there in order to have you. He had all the riches in the world. He had the relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He lacked nothing. He gave up everything in order to have you. As you see that, you see Jesus demonstrating His love for you and through the pages of Scripture looking upon you with love, you are invited and called and welcomed to come back to Him and find in Him you're all in all. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to realize that in you we have all we need? Lord, I know that as I pray that prayer, um, I'm not sure I want you to answer it because I know what that may mean. It may mean the stripping away of the things that I think I can't live without. And so I pray that you would help me and that you would help my brothers and sisters here to not have to learn that lesson that way, but instead to believe what your word says, to ask you to apply this truth to our hearts by your spirit, to come to you today and every day, whenever we walk away from you in sadness, thinking that your love won't be enough, to come back to you again and cry out, oh God, would you help me to see and believe that your love is enough? And then would you do that work in our hearts of enabling us to experience the the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Would you, O God, help us to experience that in our lives that we might love you and love you more than any other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.